Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, if you saw me over there playing with my phone, it's actually because uh, we are on Facebook Live for our, uh, this part of our service. Uh, so I say greetings to anybody tuning in on Cyberland, either live right now or watching later. Uh, we may have a few people that, that are vacationing now tuning in. I know the Williards didn't know they tuned in. So hi, Williards. <laughs> And if you don't hear this message, then I know you're playing. Uh, uh, for those who don't know me, my name is uh, Patrick Cherry, and I'm the pastor of Christ Holy Church. I'm so glad that everybody is here for week three of this. Uh, well, I guess, when does the series stop being new? Maybe after your second one that is no longer new anymore. But for our current series uh, that we're doing on the book of Revelation, at least the first kind of three chapters of Revelation as we look at the seven messages to the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, if anybody remembers, we've already done the church in Ephesus, and then last week we did the church where? Anybody remember? Philadelphia? Not Philadelphia. Smyrna. Smyrna, that's right. <laughs> Philadelphia's coming up, isn't it, Rachel? Rachel's actually going to be preaching on uh, the church of Philadelphia for us. Uh, so I'm excited to, to do that at Con during it this week, so you can ask her about that later. Really, I really have to twist her on a lot. <laughs> Uh, but excited for that. We've done Ephesus, we've done Smyrna, and today we're doing the church in Pergamon. So a little reminder of where we are in the series of you know, Revelation, because this is a book that is extremely controversial. In fact, it's probably the most debated book in the Bible out of all of them, differing opinions. We're not really going to be getting into a lot of the real controversial stuff, because I cut the series after the seven churches. That's for a later series. We'll get into the, the depth of Revelation, which I really want to do. Uh, but I think this is a great start to help us understand the focus. So a little bit of the historical background uh, before we really launch into this particular message. The date is approximately 96 AD, so a long time ago before anybody in this room was born. And uh, the reigning emperor was Emperor Dimension. He was the Caesar of the Roman Empire. And John, the Apostle John, is in his probably mid-80s, and he's on exile on the prison island of Patmos. And so he's there, and these are messages. He receives this fresh new revelation from Jesus who comes to him and speaks to him. And remember, it's one revelation. It's not revelations. It's one singular revelation, one complete revelation. Revelation is a revealing of what God had, and we pointed out that the real focus of this message to John was not just to scare the Jesus out of him, or whatever he wants to say, but it was really to help him understand, he, he, was, he was in exile because of his faith. He refused to worship the emperor as a god, which was an edict in Rome at that time. As we discussed, Dimension was a very insecure man, so he had to have people worship him as a god. And John, like many of the other believers, refused to do that. That's how he ended up on the prison island. And in the midst of all of this exile and persecution going on in all the churches, Jesus comes to John and gives him this revealing image. And the message I want us to always hear throughout Revelation as we read it is that the prevailing message is things are not as they always seem. Because we've discussed in the past two weeks that Revelation has really become a shaping our perspective. It's putting our current reality in light of a reality that's beyond our view, a spiritual reality, as well as putting our present reality into the context of a future reality that's yet to be. 
both are at play, and things are not always as they seem. And in this vision, Jesus is pulling back the curtain, the veil, between this other world. And the reason we call this when worlds collide is Revelation is really about our world finally colliding with the kingdom of God. And you know what? When two things collide, it's not always pleasant, is it? And so that's where we arrive at our third message today to the church of Pergamon. But before I go any further, and before I start speaking heresy, let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for who you are, and that you love us and you guide us through your scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray that if we continue in our worship now, that your spirit would continue to be present, that you would silence any voice in us but your own. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your message to us today, the church in Wake Forest, that you would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear. We pray for those worshiping around us. We pray that you open their hearts and their minds to hear your message to us on this day. And Lord, I pray, as a humble preacher, as my words strengthen yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, your promise remain upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints say, Amen. Amen. So a reminder of where we are in the series. If these kind of letters, if you will, these messages going out to the churches, they're addressed to the angels of the churches, but really meant to be shared with the church. And we even discussed our first week that angel may be a physical angel, or it may just be a messenger. This angel means messenger. So maybe it was meant to be a message to just share with the church, or it could be an angel that is charged with protecting the church. We don't know, but either way, this message is meant to be shared with the church. And they follow a very similar format, if anybody remembers. These letters always start with Jesus identifying himself. And if you remember in, in the very beginning, in chapter 1, when Jesus reveals himself to John, it's a startling image. Anybody remember some of the stuff he shared in the startling image? Henry, what did he share? That's right. He had bronze feet, so he'd been out tanning. He had stars. He was holding seven stars in his hands. What else? He had a sword coming out of his mouth. So apparently he's a sword swallowing Jesus now. But I mean, it's protruding from his mouth. And then he has flaming eyes, essentially. His hair and face are just glowing. White robes. I mean, it's just, it's a startling image. But we discussed how this image, the startling image of Jesus, is not just to scare us, that each aspect speaks to something. And then as we begin each of these letters, Jesus lifts up some of these, one of these images to display to each church that that particular church, in that context, in that time of what's going on, needed to hear that message. And then he discusses after that, Jesus discusses the church identity. You know, I know that you've been faithful in persecution. You've kept the faith, that kind of thing. I know what's going on, because we discussed it. He's walking among these seven lampstands that represent the seven churches. And he's among them, walking among them. And so he's present. He knows what's going on. And then we get to the difference in the disconnect. And this is where Jesus usually says, depending on the translation you're, you're looking at, but I have this against you. And so Jesus lays down a law. Okay, yeah, you've been doing this, but I know 
but you also have been doing this one. You haven't been doing this. And then we go on, Jesus always gives the remedy. How can you turn it around so that the disconnect doesn't stay? That you can't connect with this coming kingdom of God that is coming in. And then he always ends with a promise. A promise of what's to come. What do we have to look forward to? Jesus ends with a promise. And you know what? The book of Revelation is the promise for us. It is the hope we have. At the end of everything, the hope that we have. And so let's look at this message to the church in Pergamon that uh, Henry started reading for us, Rachel finished for us. It starts with this. And to the angel of the church of Pergamon, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Finally, we get to talk about the sword. This is my favorite part. Why would Jesus lead with this image for this particular church? And how could this image possibly be comforting? Because when you need comforting, do you imagine Jesus with a sword coming out? No? Nobody else finds that comforting? I mean, that's a comforting image. Well, yeah, because it offers protection. Protection, yeah. As long as you don't use the hey, sword right. on you, right? Yeah. It's like, don't use the sword on me. I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting message. I mean, why would he lead off with that message to this particular church, this double-edged Sword coming out of the mouth. So we, we discuss it's probably it's not like a little tiny little fencing sword. This is a big broad sword that is sharp on both ends, and it's very sharp in the protruding from his mouth. This is where I think history helps us understand a little bit more of what's going on here, explaining the things that maybe otherwise would escape our modern sensibilities. Because were you living in 96 AD in Pergamum? I wasn't there. You weren't there. We don't understand the context. So the history might help us. Daryl Johnson shares that the symbol of the city of Pergamon was actually a sword. That's interesting. The symbol of this city was a sword. Why? Because Pergamon was one of the few cities in the Roman Empire given the right to the sword, which meant they had the power to inflict capital punishment. That was not something every city could do. Only a few had that right, kind of like the license to kill in 007. They had that right, and because of that, the sword was their symbol. They had the right from the Roman emperor to give capital punishment. But yet still seems a little ironic that the one who claims to be the Prince of Peace is also the one coming with the sword. Isn't that interesting? Because we often say about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. That's even what we, we sing about in the hopes of Advent and Christmas with Jesus being born. Is here comes the Prince of Peace. And here he is with a sword. Seems a bit ironic. But you know what? When you consider what's going on in the city of Pergamum at that time, it may not be quite so ironic. Pergamum was a city at war. It was a city at war, not in the typical sense of we're waging war against another city in that way. It was a different kind of war. It's the same war that's waged in cities across the world today. It's not unlike the battles waged in our own American cities, or even raged here in Raleigh and Wake Forest and the surrounding Wake County area. John Stott puts it this way. He's a British pastor and scholar, great guy. If you want to read some of his, his works. But he says this. Here... A pitched battle was being fought, in which the soldiers were not men, 
but ideas. The church in Pergamum, like the church in Rome and Stockholm, Washington and Manila, New Delhi and Los Angeles, was engaged in a battle to the mind. The outcome of every other kind of battle hinges on the outcome of this battle. There was a battle of the mind going on in Pergamum. And we, we, we learn as we kind of look, especially uh, through Paul's writings, as he's discussing and moving to all these different Roman cities to discuss the gospel and everything, he's debating against people. So Paul was a great debater. And he's debating against these other ideas. Because they're talking to people who are largely pagans. They believed in multiple gods. There wasn't one true God. There was multiple gods. And yeah, maybe your God is one of them. But it was a very different idea. So there's, there's these battle of ideas going on. And, and you know, if you're a church in that kind of city, you can't help but be affected by it. And can't you see how these battles going on outside the church would affect the church where it is. And so, really, there's this pressure to the battle of alignments that start with an attack from the outside. There's really a two-front war. The first is attack from the outside. It's an attack that is cultural pressure that's going on in, in the world today. And you know, that's not unlike today. Are there cultural pressures on the church? Things and ideas Maybe even laws that differ from where the church stands. Do we have some differences? I think we do. You know, as society becomes increasingly more secular, there's more disconnect between what we believe and teach and what the world believes and teaches. And then there are confrontations with each other so often. I mean, everything from life and death to sexual, sexual ethics Justice and mercy, charity, all of these things can differ across the board. Our worlds collide as we watch this world in which we live crash up against the kingdom of God. And that's not always pretty, is it? Not always comfortable. But that's exactly what was going on at this time with the church in Burma. So Jesus goes on in verse 13. Says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So there's several things going on here that I think are worth digging into. Where Satan's throne is. That's a jarring, strong statement, isn't it? I mean, if someone comes to you and says, Satan is in you, is that comforting? The start of the thing, and Jesus is saying, Where Satan's throne is. Okay, Satan's throne is in Pergamum. Why talk about this? Well, Jesus' sharp words cut like a two edged sword. And he doesn't mince words, he cuts right to the matter. Jesus knows the place where this church inhabits. He knows their struggles. He knows the battles going on. He knows what they're up against. And he's speaking to that. And one of the things to mention, again, history and geography help us maybe understand a little bit of the imagery that Jesus is using. Satan's throne. It's a harsh word, but Pergamum was built on this high rock. And it was perched kind of on a cliff, if you will, 
what we're looking. So a throne, almost, elevated above everything else. And it was famous for its magnificent library. In fact, here's an interesting note. The library had, at the time, probably about 200,000 uh, parchment scrolls. And at that time, that's a massive library. Most places didn't have anything close. And the word parchment actually is derived from the name Burton. That's where we get the word parchment from. I thought that was fascinating. So can't you see how these, this war of ideas is going on? Because it's a city of ideas. A library full, and we're not talking about a library that is full of Bible scrolls. I mean, this is the height of the Roman Empire. All sorts of ideas right there. And so, why the throne of Satan? Well, interestingly enough, behind the city, rising some 1,000 feet above it, was another huge hill. And it hosted two big altars. The first one was dedicated to worship. Uh, I knew I was going to mess up the pronunciation of this. Uh, the Greek god Asclepios. Asclepios. <laughs> I'm butchering it, I'm sure. Asclepios? Is that what it is? Asclepius. That's what it is. I need you to come up here. He knows his Greek better than I do. It's not even practice beforehand, but I've had too much coffee. So, Asclepius. Asclepius was believed to be the Roman god of healing. And anybody want to guess what the symbol was for Asclepius? Do you know, Henry? What was the symbol? A snake on a stick. Snake on a stick. That's right. Not a hot dog on a stick. <laughs> Not corn on a stick. Snake on a stick. You know that symbol? Yeah. Know that one? All of these derived from the god Asclepius, the symbol of the snake, the god of healing that even still is used in modern day medical symbols. That's where we get that symbol from. It's from that Roman goddess. So they had this temple for healing, and there's snakes going all over the floor, and people would go, and if they needed healing, they would stay the night and sleep on the floor in hopes that the snakes would touch them in the night, bringing healing. Anybody want to go do that? Let's, after this, we're going to go to the sleepiest house and sleep with the snakes. Anybody with me? Henry is. You know, he, he loves his. And then, um, so that's where that symbol comes from. But you know what? In, in Scripture, is the snake serpent a positive symbol? Because who in Scripture is represented by the snake? <laughs> All right, Matt. Uh, you know about that. Jesus, actually. Jesus, when, when he suggests uh, the bronze servant was risen up by Moses, so the Son of Man must be risen up. Well, it's not representing Jesus, but it says that Jesus is raised up like the bronze serpent in Exodus that Moses uses to heal. Because they are poisoned and they need to come to the, the bronze serpent to find healing. But the first, very first symbol of the serpent, who is that? Satan. Right? And we're even told that the Son of Man would, uh, would step and strike the heel on uh, the serpent, and the serpent would only be able to strike the heel of the Son of Man. And so it's not typically a positive image. There are some positive uh, connotations there in Exodus, but largely it's, it's, it's pretty negative. And so there you have the snake worship going on, and 
Can't you see where the strong language might come the throne of Satan? Because evil has a foothold in Burma through ideas, through their teachings. And then I mentioned there were two temples. That was one temple. The other temple was the temple to Zeus, who's known, you know, the, the, the god of the gods, the father of many of the gods, also known as Zeus the Savior. Doesn't that clash up against what was being taught by the Christian church, the believers of the one true God? Is that why Jesus speaks the way he does and uses such harsh language? Because people are constantly living literally in the city in the shadow of Zeus because these temples would cast a shadow over the city. They are living in the shadow of these other ideas, these other idols, evil that they represent. So in every way, Pergamum is the center of ideas that were blinding people from the truth. People were blind to the truth. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet he says this, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. You were a faithful witness. So it seems that Pergamum is succeeding in the first front of the battle. The battle of the mind that we discussed, they're succeeding in the first because the, the first was pressure from the outside, the cultural pressure that they're, Jesus is saying you're succeeding in that. You are succeeding in battling that. But there's another front. Attack from within. It's attack from the outside, but it's attack from within as well. And it's explained further in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food sacrificed to the idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Revelations. So let's break this attack from within up a little bit. Jesus had a serious complaint against the church. They were standing on one front of the battle, but they're losing the other. And you know what? If you lose one front of the battle, you lose the battle. All is lost if you lose on even one front. And Jesus has a serious complaint. This is the way it was throughout Christian history. Most growing Christians are relatively able to spot and resist ideas that are blatantly contrary <clears throat> to their belief system. But some ideas come wrapped in religious language and are a little bit more difficult spot because they come from within. Again, Daryl Johnson explains that this is why it's sometimes harder to be a faithful disciple in a country with a Christian demeanor that is contrary to the militantly opposing countries of Jesus where the church is under pressure. Ever notice that in areas where the Christian church tends to be the most oppressed is where it tends to grow well, maybe that's why. It's easy to buy into cultural Christianity when there's a nice Christian veneer and it's okay and accepted within culture to be this. And so we've seen that there's a cultural Christian 
that may differ from those who are truly discipling followers of Christ. Just because you say one thing doesn't mean you're actually living that way. So there's that disconnect. And that can be an insidious battle. Let's discuss a little bit of what is being discussed here. First of all, there's several names that were mentioned. You know, the Nicolaitans, Balaam, Balak, and everything. Well, there's two groups that were identified here. There are the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. And interesting thing is that Nicolaitans is a Greek word, Balaam is a Hebrew word, and they both mean the same thing when you write. So let's look at Nicholas. Nicotan means conqueror or lord. Laos means people. So conqueror or people. Well, Balaam is the same thing. Baal, or Baal, some people pronounce it. You hear the god Baal that's talked about in scripture? means conqueror and lord. And um means the people. So conqueror or people. So both mean the same thing. So they're very well within the same group spreading similar ideas. So both are appropriate names for different teachings. And we can understand this a little better if we look at Paul's writings, because in 1 Corinthians, he actually addresses a lot of these same issues. And what were the issues? What were the two issues? Eating food, sacrifice to idols, and then practicing sexual immorality. Those were the two issues, and two issues that, uh, that Paul does discuss. So let's look a little further at these issues. What is going on in the church that's affecting all this? Well, let's touch the one that probably makes everybody go, Really, we're going to talk about that first because it affects us in our culture. We're doing it in a broader sense. The, the sexual immorality of the time, the culture, their understanding was quite different from our modern atmosphere. And people may say that we have a very charged atmosphere now. When we're talking about it. When you watch TV and commercials and daytime TV, and the stuff that's on there, wow. But I can tell you, it doesn't hold a candle to the ancient world of this time. In fact, I think Johnson. But the best one, he quotes one ancient writer. He says this, We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guardian over our household affairs. So having that broad spectrum of women in your life was completely acceptable at that time. Everybody knew that you're always going to have somebody on the side. If you few someone's on the side, then you have the one, you know, good wife, who you have the kids and you stay home and clean the kitchen. Okay? It's a little different than what we say is shameful today, isn't it? But that was the atmosphere of the time. And then you had temple worship that was going on and often had different acts that were part of it. These perverted acts that treated things differently. Do these sound, though, like some of the concerns we have in our atmosphere today? What's being taught? But the argument from the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans was essentially being presented like this. And again, we can pull from Paul's writings to get a better sense of context of what's mentioned here. But essentially, their argument is this to the church. This is where the subversive teaching is coming up from within. They're saying, you know, look, the body's not all that sacred. I mean, after all, it's only a collection of biological material, and ultimately, you're liberated from all that through Jesus. So... What you do with your body doesn't really matter if you're already forgiven. Ever heard something like that? Doesn't, if you're already forgiven, or you can ask for forgiveness, it doesn't really matter what you do. 
It's the soul that matters. Because in the end, isn't that what comes to God? It's the, it's the soul that matters. You can do anything you please with your body. Sounds a little contemporary, doesn't it? What you do to your body doesn't matter. But that's actually quite contrary to the teaching of the faith of the time. There's an interesting word used in the New Testament, soma. And soma means not only the material form, but also the imperishable part of our personality that we call soul. But even soul is not just this ghost part of you that goes to heaven when you die. That actually your soul is all encompassing. Your soma is everything. From your body to your personality, your mind, inner spirit, everything is your soma. Everything is your soul. So when we talk about soul care, we're talking about the whole being of a person. And what you do to your body does matter. And so it follows that biological material, and when, when two people come together, they share somas. That's why after the act, people are often changed. People often feel closer to one another. Well, you just share souls. To become one is what scripture said. And so the physical act is coming together. And so there is no such thing as just casual. There's nothing casual about it. Even if you believe feelings are being left out, you're sharing souls. And that's why the act is, is discussed like fire in scripture. Fire is good. Fire can bring out things, but can fire be misused? Can fire burn? Can fire hurt? Fire strong? Absolutely. That's why scripture discusses sexual immorality. It's something that's been good given to us, but taken out of context and perverted. It hurts, destroys. What we do to our bodies, everything we do to our bodies, affects our soul, affects our soul. So it does matter. But then we move on to the other, the eating sacrificed foods. This is not something we tend to have to worry about much, but at the time, temple worship. They would sacrifice to their gods, and then they would share and pass the meat around so that people could eat. And it was a way of worshiping the god. You were eating what you would offer to the gods. And so the act of eating and sharing that meal, you're saying that you're participating in this. You are worshiping this god. It was not an innocuous act. Now, the teaching that was coming up, bubbling up within the church was probably something like this. You know, look, idols are made of wood and stone and have no... Inherent reality. You don't think the tail exists. What does it matter if you live here? What does it matter? But in both the Jewish and the Gentile mind of that century, eating a meal carried so much more meaning than it does in our day today. For the Jew to eat and drink at someone's table created a bond of mutual loyalty. And share a meal that is dishonoring to God honors an idol. Communicates something to people. So, how did the Balaamite Nicolaitans position even get through the door of the church of If these seem so contrary to belief, how did they get through the door? Well, the same way these teachings get through our doors today in our churches. It's these messages wrapped in the language of the gospel. Sometimes it comes wrapped in the language of love. Well, just isn't this love? Well, yes and no. What is love? What are we talking about? 
Is God just love? Is love always a good feeling? Or can love be challenging? Can love be correcting? Can love require discipline? They're likely saying something along this. Look, you belong to Jesus. How can anything hurt you? You've been baptized. You have eaten at the Lord's table. Nothing can affect your relationship with him. So what does all this matter? Well, it matters. Jesus points it out. It's truth matters. Believing the right things matters. Jesus matters. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. So it matters. And Jesus points it out and says, therefore, you need to repent. And we've discussed the word repent in past weeks. Repent means to cease, to stop, and change directions. It doesn't mean, okay, well, we'll just stop it for now, or I'll see if it's found. No, it means stop. Just like we talk with our four-year-old all the time. We say stop. When I say stop, that means stop right now. It doesn't mean stop when you're done or when you finish. It means stop right when I speak it. And it means to change direction. It doesn't mean keep going and hit your brother. Repent. Stop. Change directions. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword in my mouth. This is where that war language comes in again. Jesus is going to use that sword if he has to. He's going to come and divide and conquer. There will be a war. And you know what? That war language may make us a little uncomfortable. But this is still a savior of love. Why? Not because he's coming wielding a sword, a bloody sword, to separate everything. But consider why he's speaking this. Because Jesus loves truth. Jesus loves truth. He speaks truth. He is truth truth. And the last thing he wants to see is the people he loves to be living a life outside of truth. Because if you are not a slave to the truth, you are a slave to all that is false. He doesn't want people to be deceived. Have you ever had a loved one that you know believes something? It may not be something of faith, but believes something that you know is contrary to reality. And you know that it's hurting you. Do you love that about him? Or do you want to correct us? We correct our children because we want them to know the truth. We want them to live by the truth. And Jesus is no different. He wants us to live by the truth. He doesn't want us to be imprisoned by all that is false. So he asks us to repent. But not just to repent. He also offers us a promise. And the promise mentions two specific things. We have the hidden manna and the white stone with the new name written on the stone. So let's discuss each of those. The hidden manna. Where do we discuss manna in Scripture? In Exodus. And the manna was something that came new every day and allowed the Israelites to live and thrive, even though they complained, in the wilderness, because every day they receive their daily bread. Remember that language of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So they receive mine, help them get through the wilderness. And so in a sense, this hidden mana is saying that just like Israel, I will provide for you until the end. So that's my promise. I will provide for you. I will help you get through the suffering. And just like in the wilderness, it may not always be easy, but I will always be with you. I will always provide for you. And I know in our church, we've experienced that. There have been times when we've been worried about all sorts of things, but God 
steps in and provides and gives us this hidden manna that we don't always see. In fact, it's contrary to logic. When people would say, you're crazy for doing this. I know when Kate and I announced that we were moving to Wake Forest to help start a new church, people were like, really? And they're like, well, how long have you been here? I don't know. How much time do I have? I don't know. We kind of discussed it. What happens if it goes south? I don't know. What happens if they succeed? We'll see. You know what? God has provided. God has provided so much to us. This hidden manna. And the second is this white stone, a new name written on it. Now, there's tons of theories about this. There's probably nine different theories. But the one that I think makes the most sense that I, I, I agree with Daryl Johnson, he says there is an interpretation of what they call the tesseral hospitalis. And this was a practice when you take a stone, you would break it, and then you write the name of your friend on one side, and you write your name on the other. And you would take the opposite stone. You would take the one with your name, and you take your friend. Do we have any practice like that today? Ever seen friendship lockets that come together? You know, best friends forever? Yeah, best. And then they come together, or there's wedding bands that will do that. Uh, Kate and I have a cross necklace where she has the inner piece and it fits to the outer piece that comes together for us. And it's a similar kind of connotation that even though you're apart, you come together, you can come together and place them together. And so Jesus is saying, look, when this is all said and done, we will still come together. That's a thought of what this is saying. I'm extending, extending this hospitality to you. So in closing, what is our lesson for this? How do we stay strong against this two-front battle of the mind, of this outside force, also the force within, because we, we are not immune. We are not immune to things that, from battles from within. Well, I think the first is we have to be open to correction. We have to acknowledge humbly that we may not always be the purveyors of truth. We can't be right all the time. So we have to be open to correction. But I think we also have to read Scripture as authoritative. Scripture speaks to us. We have to give it authority in our lives, and we have to know it to give authority in our lives. So therefore, we have to study it, we have to read it, and we have to abide by it. Even the parts we don't like. Sure, it takes some interpretation at times, but just because we don't like it doesn't mean we can be like Jefferson and cut it out of our Bible. If you've ever heard of the Jeffersonian Bible, it's a much shorter Bible than yours. I can tell you that. Just cut out the pieces you dislike. But then we have to be willing to acknowledge our ways. That's why confession is always a part of our worship service. If we're going to worship in spirit and truth, then we have to acknowledge the truth that we're broken people when we walk in this room. That we are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news Jesus Christ will not let us be captive. His words, when we allow them to speak into our lives, will cut through to the truth of the matter, like a double-edged sword. Because we are not the only ones fighting for our minds. Our Savior is fighting for our hearts, our minds, our soul, our whole soul, our entire being. We have a God who cares that much about us. And let us go to Him. Almighty God, we thank you that you are battling for our minds, our hearts, and our very souls, our entire being. 
And we pray that you would continue to battle and strengthen us in the battles that surround us from all the different fronts, that we would not falter, and that we would be individuals and that we would be a church community that is a church of the truth, sharing the great news of your gospel. The truth of your gospel is love. The truth of your gospel is powerful. And that's what people need. So help us remain true to that as we bump up against the reality that differs from your coming. We pray all of us in Jesus' mighty name.